Um, what thing? The banter. Are we this? waiting for him for that, or? No, this is it. Okay, that's what we're doing. <laughs> this is okay. <laughs> this is it. See, look at the script part where it says, "Hi, my name is Shyel Dvorak," because I might forget. <laughs> and welcome to the Crown Insider Podcast. Underneath that, um, banter here with Joe. Okay. Yeah. So that helps me understand. In this podcast that we will be recording on peculiar truths, mm. we're going to talk about the Nephilim. I'm just curious, Nephilim. do you know anything off the top of your head about the nef- Nephilim? There we no. go. Okay. They're like the really weird um, angel slash humans. Really. Is this the... This the yeah. Okay. This is the... Wait. Oh, wow. Pronouncing some of these things are going to be really bad. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you have the uh, uh. the killing in there, number three. Yes, the the left-handed yes. man. Oh. What's and the his guy name that was again? So fat that yeah. <laughs> that his guts I spilled love, out. I love reading that one. I do too for some reason cuz I'm left-handed. So Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like Okay, don't put that on the podcast. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's embarrassing. That, that, that's the banter. <laughs> that. Yeah, that's one of the the grossest Bible passages, I think. Yeah, it's disgusting. Same with Okay. What do you think of this verse, Joe? This is one of my favorite verses ever. Not my favorite, but it's okay. it's up there because it's really funny to me. Which one? It's uh, Hosea 3, 1b, and this is number two on our sheet. Oh. It says, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and they love the sacred raisin cakes. I feel like there's some context I need to there, know. Is there? <laughs> yeah, there's, okay. a, there's context behind that. Sacred raisin cakes. But sacred... Just the fact that there's sacred raisin cakes. I feel like Hosea is talking about his grandmother's like family recipe of raisin cakes. <laughs> I think that's what he's talking about. His sacred is no one calls raisin cakes sacred unless your grandmother makes them. You know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I do know what you're saying. Okay. Same with raisins. Like, okay, if I were to ever get a tattoo, which I'm not going to, do, <laughs> but if I were to ever get a tattoo down the road, I would get a raisin cake, a grape. Okay. So that when I'm old, and it will become a raisin. <laughs> yes. That's, yeah. That's kind of smart, actually. <laughs> Would that be funny? I'm going to steal your like, idea. People who get tattoos, though, I'm kind of like, you know, you might as well get a grape because it well will look like a raisin. That's perfect. I don't know. That's never what thought I've of always that. thought of. I've never thought of that. It's, it's, yeah. I think about the passage, too. I don't know if I want this on the podcast either please don't put it in but (laughs) the part about braided hair like there's a part in i think it's leviticus i don't know if it's maybe i'm totally off but there's a part on like don't braid your hair you know really for girls yeah i think my favorite bible story that probably could be in here but it's not is when elisha is when like there are kids that are like mocking elisha because he's bald so he calls he call he curses them the name of the lord and then bears come out and maul the boys that one could be in here but yeah, it's not in it's here not, that's a good be. one oh every time you mock a bald guy a hair falls out or you get mauled by a bear one of those things happen <laughs> also in proverbs like there's one proverb that it's like, give beer to those who are, like, afflicted or whatever. It says something like that. <laughs> give beer and then give wine to the distressed. Because <laughs> they need it. It's in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's... Just doing God's, just doing God's word. <laughs> uh, we're going to get shot. No. <laughs> <laughs>
have this and we have Jonah, yeah. right? Where you got both that are focused on the Ninevites. Yeah. Uh, but you get this like uncomfortable vengeance upon mm-hmm. upon Nineveh. But I mean, I think it makes sense in light of Jonah. Yeah. Right. And then it also kind of shows the vastness that you get all these passages in the prophets and in the Old Testament that are actually judgment against God's own people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's a reminder that God's not just holding his own people to certain standards, but also holding the nations at large. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But Song of Songs would be more interesting. <laughs> Another interesting one. Yeah, no, I need Well, we could tell these high good. schoolers Those how are... far is too far in light of Song of Songs, right? Can you? No, just kidding. Are. I'm thinking, well, that'll be interesting for me. You don't know what you got yourself into by inviting me along. Uh, I think this will be really fun. I'll probably say something that will, uh, well, no, just kidding. I was in a live radio thing back when they did that here mm-hmm. once, back down in this room, and whoever it was, oh, wow. I don't remember if it was Drew up in uh, admissions, asked me, What's, who's your favorite artist? And I said, Lady Gaga. <laughs> just, just to throw them completely off the game. <laughs> I think they went to dead air at that point and cut her off. <laughs> well, I should probably introduce you guys. So we'll get started on that. Hi, my name is Shyel Dvorak, and welcome to the Crown Insider Podcast. Today we're talking about unusual and interesting verses in the Bible and what they mean. So today I have two very special guests with me to discuss this topic, Professor Dean Erickson and Professor Justin Winsenberg. Thank you guys for joining the podcast. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah, good to be here. Today we're talking about peculiar truths, and it's kind of a uh, Bible trivia for college students. Could you guys give a little bit of your background? Yeah, I went to Crown College back years ago and uh, went on and got further education to come back as a professor. But uh, my interests are really in Old Testament studies. I teach Old Testament here at the college. And other interests that are maybe more peculiar, you don't think about at the college. I love bass fishing in the summer. Spending as much time as I can out on the lake, having fun with that. And then uh, also I'm a huge hockey fan. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm also a Crown College graduate from my undergraduate degree. And then I uh, left for a little while and came back. And it's been a pleasure to be professor of New Testament here. So my interests are in New Testament, but my eclectic or peculiar interests are in collecting vinyl records. Uh, Yeah, that's something I've kind of taken on the last few years. And I'm also the commissioner of my fantasy football league. Hmm? Oh, cool. (laughs) Neat. Neat. Do you guys have any thoughts on some of these passages? Uh, We have uh, different verses about the Nephilim, sacred raisin cakes. (laughs) (laughs) All these important Old Testament passages. Yes. Uh, well, you uh, asked about the Nephilim. The Nephilim. Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, Eme. Anytime you see an I-M ending in uh, the Old Testament, if you just say Eme and you, you okay. emphasize that last syllable, you're probably in the right direction. So uh, <laughs> Nephilim are introduced in Genesis chapter 6 when it says that the sons of God went to the daughters of men and produced offspring, and they were heroes of old, and it titles them or names them Nephilim. And the word Nephilim is... Uh, means literally fallen ones in Hebrew. And these are somehow the uh, cause of the flood. This is coming after the stories of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Seth being born, and then into Noah's day and the flood coming on the scene. And the Nephilim symbolize that uh, problem, the evil that's going on that causes the flood. Interesting. 
But don't they have offspring or something? Or how, how, what does that work like again in the yeah, that's, passage? Something bizarre goes on beyond that. It is. The sons of God and daughters of men produce offspring, and those seem to be these, these Nephilim. That's right. Yeah, and so the big mm. question in the passage is, who are these sons of God and daughters of men? The title sons of God is often uh, a title for angels. So angels are considered sons of God, although we usually translate it in English, angel. Hmm. So is it angels with human women and producing hmm. some mutant offspring? That's kind of sci-fi, kind of interesting, uh, wild stuff. Yeah, Avengers-esque <laughs> kind of stuff going on there. So I have the passage right here where it says yeah. Genesis 6, and mm-hmm. then towards the end of verse 3, it says, mm-hmm. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God and the daughters of humans had children by them. Mm-hmm. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Yeah, so it, that sons of God, if it's angels, then you have this angel-human-mutant offspring thing hmm. that are heroes, maybe tyrants. Um, if uh, anybody watched the Noah movie that was out about oh, eight, mm-hmm. eight years ago, something like that, they were depicted as the rock monsters in mm. a very interesting, uh, picks up all kinds of other biblical passages and Ezekiel and Watchmen and all kinds of things there in that movie. Not very biblically accurate, but interesting. Uh, but uh, others have taken the sons of God, daughters of men more literally as, uh, or more figuratively to mean the sons or descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. Cain's mm. descendants becoming polygamists and murderers and so on in Genesis chapter 4, and Seth's descendants walking with God and being righteous and calling on the name of the Lord in chapter 5 of Genesis. And then in Genesis 6, you have these two groups getting together. And if that's an intriguing uh, possibility, Hmm. it gets a little less sci-fi, freaky, whatever, and it fits with the context pretty well. And the uh, warning then would be against compromise. And if you think about Moses telling this story in the wilderness to wilderness wanderers who are constantly told, don't intermarry with those who don't know Yahweh. Don't intermarry with these other cultures because it'll lead to idolatry and that'll lead to destruction. And Mm -hmm. here we have compromise of godly and ungodly people. The old uh, Christian adage, not to date a non-believer comes right out of these passages and out of Old Testament traditions on <laughs> that. And uh, the New Testament prof is looking with a raised eyebrow at Professor right Winsenberg, <laughs> want to explain your face, your expression? No, was, I, I'd never heard that explanation from okay. that passage. I mean, I'd heard the unequally yoked, mm-hmm. you know, passage in Corinthians invoked. But mm-hmm. what I was wondering about what you were saying as well is, you know, if Moses is writing this to the wilderness wanderers, I was thinking of the sons of God in terms of like Exodus 4, where... Mm-hmm. Pharaoh or, or Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and mm-hmm. and remember God's supposed to have them go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But it mm-hmm. was interesting, at least in that passage, where what they're supposed to say is to let my firstborn son go. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, in the context of the warning of the firstborn son mm-hmm. uh, for Egypt. So I'm wondering, like, the sons of God, mm-hmm. um, does that somehow... Being Israelites yeah, for, not... formally, which would be God's people or mm. people who are at least following God, yeah. um, less racial and far more religious in all of these passages. Sure. We often understand those commandments to be racial things, don't intermarry with other races. But the implications mm. in the story are always because it will lead you to idolatry. It's a religious issue. And a lot of foreigners come into Israel. 
and marry with Israelites. Mm. We have Tamar in Genesis. We have mm. uh, Zipporah, Moses's wife in Exodus. And we have Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, who ends up being in the line of Jesus when she worships Yahweh and becomes an Israelite. So it isn't uh, the racial piece, it's the religious piece. Mm. And if that's what's going on in Exodus or in uh, Genesis 6, it, it makes more sense to me that that's the case. There are a couple New Testament passages that uh, wink at this uh, story and talk about uh, mm. uh, other destruction coming because of maybe boundaries being crossed between angel and human. Yeah. Um, I think those are misinterpreted, but that's the New Testament side. Mm. So, Right. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, explanation for that passage because mm-hmm. mostly what I've heard is that it's more, I've heard more literal. Yeah, angel, human. Angel, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. version of it and not so much that. But I'm curious about this next verse, mm-hmm. uh, Hosea 3, 1b, where it says, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> yeah, what are sacred raisin cakes? <laughs> <laughs> you have something on that? or you like... Probably something my mother-in-law would be able to make, but <laughs> I'm a little nervous go. about its religious connotations. Yeah, that's really the, the implication in Hosea. Hosea, of course, is commanded by God to go and marry a prostitute. Interesting, uh, an unfaithful wife. Question whether she's unfaithful before they get married whether or she turns to prostitution. But we know at least after he has three children with symbolic names there with hmm. uh, Gomer, this uh, unfaithful wife, she leaves him and goes into prostitution. And specifically, the, uh, the context would imply that it's a cultic prostitution. It's a prostitution at the Baal or Asherah shrines. Mm-hmm. And at those shrines, part of the offerings, uh, we know in archaeological studies uh, in these regions, were bringing raisin cakes, different delicacies to feed the gods is why you brought food to the idol, why you made sacrifices. Very different in, in uh, Israel where you bring sacrifices to God, but they symbolize Christ's coming and his death on the cross. God, Yahweh doesn't need to be fed. God mm-hmm. is beyond all the natural needs that we have. Whereas gods are often made in the image of people in these pagan religions, so they, uh, mm. they need and they do all kinds of corrupt things. And these raisin cakes symbolize that in, in this passage. She has gone back to cult prostitution. And all of that in Hosea represents us as people who wander off into sin, leave God, do other things. It's as if we're cheating on God. God has saved us. He's made us his own. And that marriage uh, mm. symbolizes that. Well, I have a question about a uh, verse in Revelation, the thirteen eighteen, where it talks about the mark of the beast and number 666. Do you have the verse on you, maybe, yeah, to share? Yeah, I've got it here. Oh, so, yeah, this famous passage. Uh, so here's Revelation uh, thirteen eighteen. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Hmm. So, pretty simple stuff, right? (laughs) So, what does that mean? What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, you know, what's fascinating about it, I think, is that there's this suggestion in there um, that there's that it can be calculatable. Now, this calls for wisdom. It almost sounds like it's like this insider thing. Like, okay, everybody, I could shout this on the mountaintops, but it calls for wisdom. And if you have the wisdom, you might know what I'm saying here. 
So it might be kind of this hidden kind of clouded language that's being used. Yeah, there's a lot of fear around the number. I mean, I remember I was working at a cell phone company after I graduated from Crown and a buddy of mine came in to buy a cell phone from me and I just had some random phone number generated for him. He's a fellow Crown student too, so it's kind of funny. So he got this phone number and it was like, you know, local area code, something, something, something. And the last numbers were 6666 or something. <laughs> and he was something really close to that. You know, there was certainly a 666 in there. And he and he gave me a hard time about it. Like, hey, you can't give me this number. And I thought he was being superstitious. So I'm like, nah, you're going to keep it. Oh. Uh, and of course, what did he, did he accidentally take the mark of the beast? You know, so it, it's interesting because it says that it's the number of a man, which can be interpreted in a couple different ways. Is it that this is a human number? You know, 666, it's a human number, and it just happened to be saying that humans use this number. Or is it saying it's a number that represents a person? Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, what we often do is we try to look to, like, history and say, well, who's the man then? You know, is it someone we're still waiting for? Is it someone that's existed in history? And Or towards the future? Towards the future. You always get, I mean, Dean, you, I'm sure, are well aware of some of the, some of the, suggestions that have made about former antichrists. <laughs> oh, yeah, all, all through since uh, the John sp- wrote this. It, yeah. It's been speculated in almost every generation, someone who was uh, an epitome of evil. A hmm. uh, gen- few generations ago, people identifying Hitler mm-hmm. or Mussolini or others. There's actually a, a YouTube video that uh, doesn't go through 666, but through another means to try to uh, take a recent president as uh, mm-hmm. perhaps the Antichrist, <laughs> and uh, those are uh, mm-hmm. have, keep being proven incorrect. So mm-hmm. I would hold any of them very, very lightly. Um, mm-hmm. That yeah, six 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 for is it a, a human number mm-hmm. less than seven seven seven? Triune God, you yeah. know, holy number, or is it a specific person? And I think in Revelation, it at least I lean more toward a specific person. What, hmm. what do you do with that? Yeah, I think a specific person can make sense. The question is what if the specific person had already been alive at the time or not. And the fascinating thing that a lot of scholars bring up is is the Hebrew gematria or the system in Hebrew alphabet and in the Greek alphabet of having numbers have or letters, I'm sorry, have numerical e- equivalents. Mm-hmm. And that there's even been things that have been found where in one case, a person writes, I love the girl whose number is, and it lists a number, and the idea would be that the person would know their name is equivalent to a certain number, and when they see the number, they'd identify themselves with it. Hmm. So what some have said is that, well, it's a curious thing that you can actually get 666 with Nero's name. Mm-hmm. And why is it so curious? Mm. Because of some of the things that are said in Revelation seem to be definite jabs at the Roman Empire, the fact that you need the mark of the beast to purchase things, the fact that the emperors were putting, you know, their image and they were putting what could have been considered blasphemous things upon those coins, things like son of God, things like savior, and they're making pretty bold claims. So there's some controversy as to whether Nero's meant, but what that does is it creates a problem for us then was Revelation only speaking, if it is invoking Nero, was it only speaking about stuff within its own lifetime? And then is it not predictive? But what I tend to think is, well, can it be a little bit of both? Can't there be this definite invocation of Nero showing that there's a person kind of Nero-like who might someday rise up and they're not going to name Nero. It requires wisdom to calculate because by naming Nero, it'd put him into some danger, even if this is written shortly after Nero's death. 
So in some ways, what it could be is a strategy of like both and. You get this invocation of Nero at the one hand, on the other hand, looking forward to the future to a person who might kind of be like this and warning the Christians of the fact this would one day come. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. So I don't get too bothered when I hear $6.66 at a grocery store. You don't round it up? No, I don't <laughs> round it up. Uh, let's jump over to Judges 3, 12 through 30. And this is the story about Ehud. Is that how you say it? Yes. Yep. Yeah. The, with the left-hand man, mm-hmm. the story where he sticks the knife into the king and mm-hmm. kills him and his guts spill out and yeah. all of that. All so, fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Can I say something? You know, I this this story might be why I'm here in some ways, because I had a youth pastor um, when I was just brand new going to church in high school who told this story, and I, I could not believe it was in the Bible. I, you know, I had this image of what the Bible was, and then he told this story just in such an animated fashion mm-hmm. that I thought, this is kind of cool. I didn't, I didn't know this is in, like, the Bible. It's very cool stuff. The Book of Judges in general, very cool or very disturbing, depending on your perspective kind of <laughs> stories. Yeah. This is one of those that's fascinating. Uh, Israel's at a time where they are continually wandering away from God into idol worship. God is continually allowing enemies to come in and invade and take control of Israel until Israel finally repents and cries out to God, and he sends a deliverer who comes and overcomes the enemy and sets Israel free again. And Ehud is one of those deliverers, one of those judges. And it says of Ehud that he's a left-handed man, and we find some uh, interesting throughout the Old Testament, left-handed people often are great in military battle or assassins. And in this case, Ehud is a left-handed man. And what's significant is because uh, kind of like baseball, where you a left-handed pitcher is effective because you don't see that many of them, especially growing up, uh, baseball players don't. And so you're hmm. used to it coming from the right side. And if you think of sword fighting, you expect a sword in the right hand. And so when you have someone fighting you for the left hand, it's disorienting, and often the person with their left hand can be more effective. So Ehud straps a dagger, a short sword, uh, to his thigh, where he, if he's frisked here when you come into the presence of the foreign king to pay your taxes, your tributes, uh, they would make sure you don't have a sword with you. But he hides one in a place where they wouldn't look, which is where you would draw it with your left hand instead of your right hand. So mm-hmm. he uh, eventually gets an audience with the king alone in his bedroom, in his throne room, and, and in a place where nobody else is there. And while he's going to tell him a word, a, a, a secret from God, he pulls that sword, stabs Ehud, who's described. Ehud stabs the king, Eglon, king of Moab, and it describes Eglon as a very fat man which isn't nice either. It's the Bible, and somebody's being called a name. But uh, it gets very graphic about how far in the sword goes and comes out his back, and he had lets go of the sword, and it kind of vanishes inside the king, and he doesn't go in after it. He leaves. It's, if you've never read Judges, fascinating stories. But, yeah, the left-handed is more because it's unusual and it's effective in battle. Hmm, interesting. I always kind of wondered if they buried him with that sword and then... Maybe they're not able to pull it out, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could you go and find his bones somewhere with a sword in uh, Eglon's belly? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Good archaeological find. <laughs> mm-hmm. Point of all those stories is when we wander from God, the enemy has power over us. We, we suffer until we repent and God restores, God delivers. Hmm. 
and he faithfully delivers Israel over and over in Judges. What was so energizing for me, though, about that story was that it's like you get this impression of what the Bible is, and then it kind of gets blown to smithereens, especially in Judges. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a few of those stories in there. Mm-hmm. The dismemberment of the, yeah. of the woman, right? Like the, anyhow, all of that, it's kind of... I understand why youth groups use it a lot because you get students who have certain impressions of what the Bible is. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's kind of nice to highlight the shocking stories in mm-hmm. some ways to let students know that like, Hey, you know, this is, this is not just like very profitable stuff for our own spiritual lives, but it's actually a really interesting story. <laughs> yeah. It grabs your attention for sure. Yeah. Real life. Okay. Let's jump over to numbers. This is numbers 22, 21 through verse 39. It says, quote, when the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and said to Balaam, uh, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? End quote. Yeah, and the question is, how is a donkey talking here? Yes. Yeah, it's a, it is a fascinating story. The, the, the bigger story is Israel is on its way to the promised land. It is coming through the land of Moab. They're too powerful for the people of Moab, so they know they can't fight them in battle. And the king of Moab enlists a, a prophet, a seer, a false prophet, a pagan prophet here, uh, to come and curse Israel for the king of, of Moab. When uh, Balaam prays and actually asks Yahweh, can I go? And Yahweh says, yes, but do say only what I tell you to say. And Balaam gets up and goes, and God is angry. And so you have this weird scene. Why is God angry that he's going? And then as he's riding his donkey, the angel of the Lord appears in front of the donkey with a sword drawn. And Balaam can't see it, but the donkey does. And the donkey wanders off into a field. And Balaam gets off and beats it with a stick, gets back on the path, starts riding. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord again, and this time he's in sort of a narrow passageway between two uh, uh, cliffs or uh, stone fences. He moves over to try to get around the angel and crushes Balaam's leg against the, scrapes it against the rocks. And Balaam is mad and gets off and beats the donkey. And the third time, the donkey sees uh, an angel of the Lord, and there's nowhere to get off the path. She just lays down under Balaam. And mm-hmm. Balaam still isn't seeing the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn to kill Balaam. Mm. And that's when this interaction comes. He gets off to beat her again, and she speaks to him and says the words that you read here. And the donkey says, why have you beaten me these three times? In fact, the conversation is more developed. The, the donkey mm. says, am I not the donkey you've ridden? For many years, have I ever been doing this? Is this my habit? And what's fascinating to me, it's almost more miraculous than the donkey talking, is the donkey wins the argument with Balaam. And Balaam scratches his head and answers, no, you aren't. This is confusing. And then he sees the angel of the Lord, which is ironic because he's a seer. He's supposed to be a prophet. He's supposed to see the future, see Hmm. what's happening, have some connection to the divine. But he has no clue that the angel of the Lord's there. And the angel of the Lord says, you better be thankful your donkey stopped because I was here to cut you down. Mm. And then tells him, go and prophesy, but say only what Yahweh tells you to say. Mm. Balaam is what I call a prophet for prophet. He, <laughs> he will say anything anyone pays him to say. 
And Yahweh told him, you can go, but I have a message for Israel. You can't say what the king uh, that's hiring you, that's paying you, can't say what he wants you to say. Only say what I tell you to say. And what he says is he blesses Israel. Hmm. In fact, he makes the king of Moab so mad, he fires him. Because every time he gets up to curse Israel, he blesses Israel instead. Hmm. Well, one question I have about this passage Mm -hmm. that's really interesting is it almost kind of sounds like the difference that we see between animals and humans mm-hmm. is kind of foggy here. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. he's he's talking and he, the donkey can see the vision. So what do you do with that? Yeah, it, it is interesting here because it's not common. We don't normally see this happening, obviously. And it's comforting to me because I think if God can make a donkey speak, maybe when I speak, it'll mean something <laughs> if God's in it, if I'm saying what he wants me to say. <laughs> so I might be as... Well, close to as good as a donkey here. So, um, yeah, God can do whatever he wills. This is his mm-hmm. creation. He's created to run a certain way, and that is that angels don't speak English or speak language like we do, although they communicate with each other, but not uh, not like we do. But God can use anything to speak his word. And in this case, he opens the mouth of a donkey. In the New Testament, upon Palm Sunday, we just came through, when the uh, Pharisees, teachers of the law, tell Jesus, tell your disciple or tell the people here to stop praising you, Jesus says, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. Mm-hmm. And God is going to celebrate this event of the Messiah coming to Jerusalem and, and one way or another. So here we see a donkey that actually speaks. Hmm. Am, wow. am I the only one who imagines what this, what my cats might sound like if they had human <laughs> voices? Because I have one cat who has a really oh, high-pitched no. meow and one cat that's kind of normal pitched meow. And so, you know, I'll kind of mimic my high, high-pitched meow cat's voice and my wife doesn't appreciate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you're the only one that thinks that. I probably yes. am, yeah. <laughs> anyway. No way to segue from that. Yeah, I don't, you know, <laughs> we could talk if all dogs go to heaven, you know, that's there always a go. fun topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Lion of Judah, so we get a cat back. That's true. Go ahead, we're just wrapped. <laughs> you can cut this later. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, do you want to talk about the passage in Acts 5, 1 through 11, mm-hmm. where we mm-hmm. see the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Yeah, that's also an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Dean, you might have a take on this because you were mentioning ahead of time that you think this is a good Old Testament story in the New Testament. I do think it's a great Old Testament <laughs> story. When people set up this uh, dichotomy between the Old Testament and mm-hmm. wrath, God's wrath and so on, and then the kind and gentle Jesus in the New Testament, I always bring up the story of Ananias mm-hmm. and Sapphira who uh, hmm. have property. They sell, Actually, Barnabas first sells a piece of property and gives the mm-hmm. proceeds to the apostles to help the needs of the poor, whoever might need it. And Ananias and Sapphira see that and want to get to similar kind of praise or credit for that. So they sell a piece of property and they bring some of the proceeds. They keep some for themselves, but they say they brought all of it to look good mm-hmm. in people's eyes. And God strikes them dead at the altar. That's where it sounds like the Old Testament wrath, God kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's a New Testament story and uh, after Jesus story, which makes me always think the God of the Old Testament is not as different than Jesus as we think. In fact, there's one true God in three persons, and mm-hmm. God is consistent mm-hmm. in both Testaments. 
So that was where I was going with it. But you can tell the story a little better and what's no, going on you, in the story. You got the story. What I'm, what I'm interested in is that the last time I read through this when we were talking through it in New Testament history, mm-hmm. I just kind of noticed that it doesn't necessarily explicitly say that God killed them. It, it uh, maybe yes. implicitly, but you, you get uh, Sapphira at the end where the young men found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all upon, all upon those who heard those things. I mean, certainly it seems to be implied. Um, Does it say anything by the Spirit in there, or is that not in there? No, when I Ananias thought... heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great oh. fear came upon hmm. uh, all who heard of it. Hmm. Yeah, so, the, the connection with the Holy Spirit is when Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, and, and kept test some, the Spirit of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, and then he falls down dead, and so Clearly. the connection is God must be killing him. There's there's an implicit sense yeah. there, for And sure. that it happens as soon as they drag out his body, his wife comes in. Yeah, Ananias, exactly. Sapphira does the same thing. She also falls down dead, having tested the Spirit. And uh, great fear seizes them. Yeah. I, I mean, you made a good point about the Barnabas story right before it because he clearly he sold a field that belonged to him. Mm-hmm. He laid the money at the apostles' feet. And then you get this contrast with this couple who claims that they're selling everything and giving the proceeds and they're really holding stuff back. Yeah. So and in it's, some ways, it's the lie more than the greed. That yeah. They for say sure. they've given it all, sure. but they kept some back. And mm-hmm. Peter says, you could have just given whatever you wanted. Nobody told yeah. you you had to do this. Mm. What's puzzling to me though, so, okay, we've got this passage and it seems to say, okay, here's the, here's the way to do it. Be a Barnabas and not an Ananias and Sapphira. Mm-hmm. But then you even think about Barnabas and I'm like, wait, um, Barnabas is pretty much a good guy in most mm-hmm. of Acts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's that dispute that him and Paul have about John Mark, which makes it a little bit complicated, but there's not much that's said about him. Almost every time he appears in Acts, he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. And then you get Paul in Galatians, who mentions a scene where he had to confront Peter on because Peter apparently was going back on what seemed to be the vision that he had in Acts about the eating with mm-hmm. Gentiles. And so Paul says that he had to confront Peter. And then he adds that little detail, and Barnabas was pulled astray as well. Mm-hmm. So that makes me think, like, okay, Ananias and Sapphira are acting in this way in contrast to Barnabas, and it's so egregious that they are killed for it. But then you're getting Barnabas and Peter acting in such a way that's going against one of the core things the whole Gentile mission and acts, and one of the core things that that Peter has a vision on, and yet they survive. Hmm. Like they don't get any, we don't get any massive judgment. In mm-hmm. fact, we get no other explicit judgment like this again until First Corinthians, where it seems to also imply that the Corinthians were dying because they were improperly sharing the meal together. In fact, they weren't sharing the meal. That's what seemed yeah. to be the problem. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems like a rare thing, but I always kind of wonder, okay, I, I, I believe the interpretation's right of it being implicitly imp- that God's the one doing it, but why mm. this and why not Peter and Barnabas? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty bad move on their part. Mm-hmm. They're leaders of the church after all. Some of the highest leaders in the church, wouldn't God hold them to a higher standard and strike them down too then? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, good good <laughs> yeah. question. Good yeah. question. And whether the hypocrisy is the same as lying there. And they do get confronted. They do get uh, yeah. shamed might be too strong a word there. But Paul calls them out and corrects them hmm. in Galatians. So that not the same as being struck down. You do no, have some things no. in Acts happening in some miraculous ways, though, as as 
signs that mm. God has moved in a new way, and God is among these disciples doing this. So some of the things that are happening in Acts, you also don't see that often later in, in the New Testament. Yeah, I think the mm. one thing that jumps out to me that might be the difference, if I'm trying to answer my own question, I guess, yeah. would be that if, if the Holy Spirit's such an important role player in the whole book of Acts, that would be the one thing that would make more sense to me, is mm -hmm. in that story, it's not just that they're holding stuff back. Mm -hmm. It's not just that they're lying. All these things are bad. It's the lying to the Spirit, whatever that meant for mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. that seems to go against the whole like trajectory of all of Acts, which mm -hmm. is that the Spirit's moving, the Spirit's moving things forward, the Spirit's moving in people no one had anticipated. So to me, I'm like that context with the spirit in mm -hmm. that story might be the answer to why such a harsh judgment came down upon them when it didn't with others. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a passage too somewhere, and I'm not remembering where, about the unforgivable sin with the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. denying the Holy Spirit? Yeah, blaspheming the Holy or Spirit. Or blaspheming mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. Yep. Where and that, you that? can uh, have a moment <laughs> to think about that, but uh, in the Ananias and Sapphira, I do think the the conflict Jesus has so often with his with the Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, all of those Sadducees, the hypocrisy he constantly brings out. John the Baptist condemns them for it. Jesus condemns them for it. Um, and here you have Ananias and Sapphira trying to look like righteous people and better than everybody else, or at least as good mm -hmm. as Barnabas, better than everybody else. And that is what is so harshly judged by the Spirit here. Yeah, I don't know if I have an answer for it, except, you know, I, I'm kind of, it's kind of curious to me how people talk about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit stuff, because I think people mm -hmm. assume that there's, like, you can almost accidentally do such a thing, and it would, like, disqualify you from from being a follower of Jesus anymore, or going to heaven when you die, or however people want to put it. Right. It seems to me to be more intentional than that, mm -hmm. than just an accidental, whoops, you know, I accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit here. Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering the passage right, too, I, th I think it's where the people had hardened their hearts so far against it or something. Well, I should... I'm... No, that's right. You're on the right track in that it seems to be even diabolical. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with they are accusing Jesus of using Satan's power to cast out demons. Mm -hmm. And this sense of claiming something God is doing is actually what the devil is doing or that the devil is doing it when God's doing it. Mm -hmm. the, that's why I said diabolical. I mean, this yeah. demonic, there seems to be something egregious going on hmm. that he's accusing he's, and isn't necessarily accusing them of, a, but warning them mm -hmm. that there are lines you should not cross. And it may be all the way into the demonic realm, into that kind of stuff, hmm. as opposed yeah. to, yeah, I, I said a swear word that really was yeah. too, too bad of a swear word. Yep. Not really what Jesus was talking about. Well, Professor Winsenberg, Professor Erickson, thank you so much for joining the Crown Insider Podcast. It was awesome to have you both. It was our pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. This podcast was created by students in the content marketing team at Crown College. To contact us, send an email to marketing at crown.edu or find us on www.crown.edu. All material, copyright 2019.